Content warning. This episode contains intense sound design, gunfire, possession, and references to starvation, cannibalism, and fascism. Hey there, Kai here, the creator of Chain of Being. I just thought I'd drop in to say that the show has a Patreon now. Why the fuck would I give you money, I hear you ask? Well, besides directly contributing to the growth of the podcast, as well as paying for content you deem worth paying for, there are a series of rewards available to patrons. These are the three tiers. The £3 an episode tier, also known as the Immortals, where you get access to patron-exclusive content, a special role, and access to patron-only channels in the Discord, as well as your name in the credits. There's the £5 an episode tier, also known as the Scries and Mystics, where you get an extra special Discord role, exclusive patron voting power for polls that will be held on the Patreon in the future, and at some point, your name will be said on an episode, be it a character, a ship, or an announcement on the PA. In addition to this, you get everything else in the previous tier. Then there's the extra special £10 an episode tier, also known as the Divine. As well as everything already mentioned in the other tiers, you get an extra, extra special Discord role, and with that, access to a Divine-only Discord channel. In addition to all of that, you get to be in Chain of Being. Be it a grunt in the Viatorian military or an AI on a ship, your voice will feature in the podcast. The reason I'm doing per episode is that I don't really have a regular upload schedule. And with me possibly going to university soon, I likely won't be able to release episodes that frequently. Also, it just makes more sense to me that you'll be directly paying for the content you consume. And when I'm late on episodes and such, you won't be paying for content you're not getting. Anyway, think it over. And if you feel you value my content enough that you'd like to contribute, there's a link in the episode description. My fellow humans, I speak these words to you, not for the purposes of teaching, but as an opportunity for reflection. What I tell you now is known to you, be it from my lips or deep in your heart of hearts. I ask that you think back on our history, a long time since passed from living memory. Think of Earth, our birthplace, where we first rose from the mud of the Kenya Rift Valley, brilliant and new, a spark of life, absent in all other creatures on our planet, but strong in us. A planet which was destroyed, and thus we were scattered like grains of sand in a tempest, forced to scrounge and scrape by to survive. Nevertheless, we persisted. Our unique adaptability and unquenchable infatuation for survival, driving as hunters. Strewn as we were across Mercury, Venus and Mars. Our shattered fragments wriggling like insects into the cold ground of Ganymede. Europa and Enceladus. Devouring even each other as our souls grew hollow. And the anguish of hopelessness was bearing down on us like a cruel oppressor. And as we were at our lowest, when parents looked on at their children with hunger in their eyes, as neighbours tore each other apart for mere drops of water, the council descended from the heavens, breaking through the atmosphere, aglow with flames like angels with burning halos. And so they took our hands as if we were lost children and promised us safety and unity in their midst. I say to you, that in shuffling off the yoke of one oppressive force, that of desperation and despondency, we ushered in a new one under that vile and contemptuous council of pneumonia. 
Do you not find it an incredible alignment of the stars that the council happened to find us at our worst? Or that Earth was just lost? We are told it was our actions that led to the fall of Earth, but I tell you now that that is just the venomous lie of the council being fed into our ear to make us hate our own kind, to destroy our reputation in the galactic society. They wanted us in their grasp, and so they destroyed our planet and reduced us to festering animals to manufacture our need to join them. The life we lead as a species is one of subjugation. We are ruled and enchanted by machines, the origins of which we know not, surrounded by multitudes of beings who do not care for our history, our brilliant human culture, forged in suffering. They insist on forcing us to share our living spaces with those dark-eyed demons, the Veatorians. The Council's philosophies are tantamount to genocide as they attempt to eliminate our culture and remove our sense of identity. We must unite, as it was in the golden age of our past. The human culture shall not be destroyed and deformed. Many of you may see the Council of Pneumonia as a monolith, the only cove of safety in a tempestuous and indifferent universe. But I say to you, there is another way. For in the days of old, there were humans who turned the Council and their silver tongues away, who refused to bow to an alien master. Those humans formed an alliance of the solar system. Those humans stand before you now. Humanity will stand strong once more. We will become the shining star at the center of the galaxy. Unto humanity only. I stand on a podium placed just outside the main cruiser hangar whose doors lay wide open to illuminate me and my other masked compatriots who stand behind me in affirming silence. It is not the largest I have ever delivered a speech to, but it is not the smallest either. I looked on at the crowd of mercenaries in day coats, forced to work in the shadows under a power too great for them to resist, and feel pity. From birth they knew no other way, and yet their intrinsic human spirit told them to defy the alien authority. They are not like me, who have been raised in my own stellar system. I often think of home, remembering running through the fields in New Chennai on Ganymede with my friends. That was when I had had a name before I took on the mantle of the Sword of Nemesis and offered up my identity as tribute, dedicating myself to the cause. The speech I gave was one that had been repeatedly redrafted and rewritten long before I was born and would continue to be altered long after my death until it was no longer needed. It would be reformed for the new ways of speaking and events in the pangalactic zeitgeist tailored to stir up the emotions of any human listening, regardless of accuracy. The truth often has to be modified to get the right feeling from an audience. As the recruits file out of the made-up square where they've been standing in formation and onto various training exercises, I take a walk, leaving the broad, flat cruiser behind me 
I walk to the edge of the mesa. A frame sits on the edge, dug into the ground with a long double rail, tracing all the way down the side. Our work in this place means that a great deal of noble gases get out into the atmosphere. The entire mesa is swamped in argon and neon mostly, but a good deal of the others too. I need not worry, the mask takes care of most things, but my forces have to train in rebreather visors, a hindrance but necessary to their survival. The scales of Nemesis had gone out on an expedition recently with a pair of initiates. That had been some time ago, and so she should be back home, safe, anytime soon. I stand and look out at the horizon. A sense of pride swells up in me. Generations and generations of work have led up to where I am now. It was not long before things would begin to take off and the plan would be fully enacted. A message arrives on my mask. Target locked on. Manifestation to take place in 27 hours. Underneath the golden facade, I smile. Everything is coming together. Total power would soon be within the grasp of the Anthronesians. All I would have to do is take it. I've grown so tired of walking on this planet. The endlessly stretching flatlands covered in the net of vines provides little to look at. There is not much that varies. A while back I saw a small grove of trees which grew tightly back together in the distance. Though having spent so much time here, I'm starting to no longer trust my senses. Even the temporary hobby of naming ship models grew tiresome after the hundredth repeat. I look up every so often to stare at the huge and looming mesa, as if checking it's still there. I take a break to drink some water as the sun sit directly above me. A few hours back I'd reached a point where I sort of switched off and just trudged along. I'm not shaken out of that state as I rest in the shadow of a large mossy boulder and absently sip from the flask I borrowed from Vestak Cry. Does the grand little one here? I look up, roused from my half-dazed state. Was that? It does. It listens. I stand and look around the other side of the boulder and find no source. Does it see us? Where are we? Do I not see it? The other, the other. I feel something tug at my ankle and look down to see a vine snake its way up my boot. Ugh! I pull away and extend my spear towards it. Why does it resist communication? Not so other, perhaps. No way forth with no back. Who's there? I call out. My thoughts had not been invaded in this way for such a long time. The information skipped the step of travelling through the air as sound waves and vibrating through the bones of my ear, and instead manifests directly as wordless thoughts in my mind. We don't understand its words. I will try to initiate communication again. The two sets of vines snake up my boots and I can no longer find purchase to pull away. I go to stab at the vines but it's tough and stringy and I do little damage to it. I feel a sharp pain in my calf and I call out in pain. A pain which quickly becomes muted and I feel a sensation as if a horde of many small hands rake their fingers over my brain. I stumble to lean back against the boulder. I begin panting. The strain of what I feel takes a lot out of me. I see two things simultaneously, a similar feeling to picturing or remembering an image while the eyes remain open. The image of what is in front of me is maintained, but I am lost in what my mind creates. Except this is not the work of my mind. I feel an overwhelming sense of vastness. I feel a horde of trillions upon trillions of individual nodes as one vast collective. Still does not abide us. 
but I can forfeit it come back. Who are you? What is this? What a beautiful voice you have. How can you not know me? You stand upon my back and your people eat of my flesh. Oh, not your people. You find divisions amongst your kind. It speaks with my voice. The vines. Rolda, the other great one, calls me. She has been grasped by something else. Extremely resistant to us. No longer, it seems. It all makes sense now. What Beddiel had been trying to tell me. The vines, the rolder, a look at my feet. The entire planet is covered in one singular organism. Of course, a small isolated patch would only act out basic survival principles, but on a planetary scale. I welcome you. I wish for you to become us, and so it will be. I can't. I, I must be free. You will be us. I have to get to the top of the mesa. I, I have to leave. For just a moment, I snap back into my own mind and try to wrench myself from the vines which have begun to entangle around my entire body and I lean against the rock behind me, my eyes fixed on my destination. A small black speck sat atop its huge and sweeping mass. I am brought back into the mind of the rolder. But we are not there. It grows too toxic for me to bear, and strange happenings take place upon that accursed scene. Small great ones like yourself, but greater still. I have to be there. You may not see it, but this is for all of our benefits. Show us. Let me in. For a moment I do not resist, and I allow the plant to see what I saw in the mind of Might Upon Serenity, the form of a Vignadal, and I hope he can glean some understanding of my urgency, however a planet-spanning plant thinks. I think hard of the image of a Vignadal, and I feel the plant physically recoil away from the associated emotions and memories. It is. I feel the vines begin to shrink away from me ever so slightly. I will help you in your endeavours. Follow the path of our undeniable beauty. There are safe ways up to that noxious place. The vines fall loose from my body and detach from under my skin. I start to bleed as I watch the vines re-knot themselves back into the thin, tangled mess, and I take a small, tightly packed roll of bandages and wrap it around the plus-shaped wounds in my calf and arm. I often refrain from invoking the name of a god or any sort of divine figure. It often leads to needless complications and unwanted attention. Every so often something will get to me, and I feel the need to swear, so I do so in the most non-specific way possible. Oh my fucking god! Only once it has removed itself from my mind does the rush of fear that I should have been feeling come over me in a single moment, and I feel a lump in my throat, close to tears. Not for a single moment did I consider the horror of what was happening to me. Were it not for my sense of duty, I would be absorbed into the consciousness of the planet-spanning plant of the rolder, though plant seems too small of a word. I ignore the feelings for now, and use the spear to push myself up completely. A trail of bright flowers begins to bloom at my feet, a deep red colour, each individually made up of hundreds of thin fronds that fan outwards. The trail blooms towards the Anthronesian base, and so I retract my spear and follow the trail of flowers. A full day passes before I get to the bottom of the mesa, passing nothing of any real interest on the way. It makes me wonder if the strange things I saw on the way to Vestak Cry were actually there, and not the manifestations of a tired and sun-baked mind. I can see the back of the cruiser that the Anthronesians are set up on. Tracing down the steep side of the mesa are two rails of some sort. Every four hours a small cart will travel up and then back down again along them. The vines grow thicker and more intensely tangled here, but as it grows up the side of the almost sheer rock face they grow thinner and more sparsely. The trade of flowers I had been following do a zigzaggy path up the side, I take a step closer and notice the vines had 
curved in such a way that they provide handholds for me. I grab a hold of the first one. It sits firm against the red rock of the mesa. I pull myself up and begin my long ascent. It's long and arduous. I take a break around halfway and take a moment to admire the landscape. Vestat cry. The small forest of trees and a few other landmarks are enclosed in a ring of mesas and grand slopes like the one I'm currently scaling. The rolder stretches onward past the horizon, covering absolutely everything in an unending sea of green. The suns begin to set, setting the serene landscape ablaze. A single long stretch of vine curls up around to the top of the mesa. I watch it wither and die in real time as I shimmy up it. It goes from verdant green to brown and shrunken. Increasingly, I find the atmosphere a lot more hostile the further up I go. And by the time I begin to inch closer to the top of the mesa, I find that there is almost no oxygen at all. I remember the gift might left with me, and I take the small bronze sphere out of my pocket. Hooking my arm around the inside of the slowly dying vine, I twist it clockwise, and it begins to unfurl like a blooming flower. It clicks and whirs, and takes the shape of a kind of butterfly, with two long, thin wings. There's a rubber seal around the middle which I place in my mouth. The wings enclose around my cheeks, and I take a deep breath. The air is fragrant, and doesn't quite feel like it has been filtered out of the surroundings, but is instead coming from another source. I finally reach the top of the mesa, pull myself up, and roll over onto the side. The vine that I used to get up here finally dies and falls away from the sheer rock wall. I thought that the flat expanse of the treeless swamp was featureless, but scanning my surroundings now on the mesa, I appreciate the minute interruptions of that strange and fearsome place. Drawing in deep breaths through the strange contraption affixed to my face, my gaze is drawn to the large cruiser, resting on the edge of the mesa. It hugs tightly to the ground and spreads outward. I don't recognise it. Not a council make, and certainly not an old human ship. Far too new looking for that. Outside the main hangar is a perimeter of fencing which cuts a rectangle of about 70 metres wide. In front of the fencing is a large, tightly packed series of supply boxes presumably stolen from the surrounding areas and packaged here at their home base. A few heavy-duty drones carry crates into the main hangar. The whole scene is lit up by a set of extremely powerful floodlights fixed to some very advanced-looking gun turrets. The ambient light from the hangar, which, combined with the floodlights, make it feel like the vibrant twilight of the suns isn't soaking the red earth, and that night isn't soon to swaddle the landscape entirely. All manner of security methods are available. Even the most low-budget security systems have, at the very least, a rudimentary construct of several AIs that work in tandem, monitoring heartbeat sensors and motion detectors, controlling drone swarms and personnel recognition, recognizing what's normal in a day and what's not. And that's just what pertains to me. So as I take stock of my surroundings, it's already too late. With aquiline swiftness, the floodlights cut, and the whole area turns dark, save for the restricted glow of the hangar, which silhouettes the aggressive tension of the guards sat in their artillery spheres atop the guard towers, as well as a series of Anthonesian soldiers in full regalia and visors of some kind. I charge forward and very ungracefully fall behind a large metal crate as the first volley of fire comes from the soldiers. Luckily for me, not the turrets, presumably to protect the supplies. These soldiers use the same rifles as the two Anthonesians back at Vestat Cry, electrified. In the atmosphere, thick with noble gases, the electrified rounds illuminate the darkness with vibrant neon luminescence. If I weren't in danger of getting an arm blown off, I'd find it beautiful. The mix of colours form trails behind the bullets which quickly die out, but the rapidity of which I'm being fired upon keeps the incandescent glow alive. 
I shuffle along and dive forward to the next crate. Slightly smaller but still adequate cover. The lid for this one opens towards the enemy, and so I flip it up and grip the insulating foam to provide more cover. The metal shudders with each shot. I look inside the crate and see a series of firearms, most old and rusty, no consistency in the make, clearly taken from a town nearby. I grab the least decrepit looking one and drop the container lid. I aim at an Amtronesian, flip the safety and pull the trigger. It clicks. My eyes dart to the place where the magazine should be. Empty. Oh fuck, I think, as a round hits my shoulder. I tense up and the round fills my body with electricity. I collapse to the ground, sidearm still in hand. I hear a voice call out. Confirmed hit! The firing stops. Spadikoff, confirm! What do you mean? I'm not going out there, you confirm! Hey, I outrank you, you got him. You do? Since when? Yesterday, I had my initiation with the Cuban of Nemesis. The last of the shock leaves my body, and I begin to snake my hand up and into the box, rooting around for a clip of some kind that feels like it would fit into my sidearm. When was that? I didn't hear about it! You wouldn't have! She said it was meant to be private, just us and the rest of the Nemesis Legion. That totally sounds like you're making it up! Does kind of sound like you're making it up! Shut up, Latimer! Shut up, Latimer! Actually, Latimer, you go confirm. I didn't fire the shot! Don't care! That's an order! Fine! I hear the gate open and some footsteps approach. I grab something that feels like it would fit into the gap in my weapon. I'm sure we have drones to do this. I don't know why I personally have to go and check. I take the clip and slot it into the breech loading pistol. I flick it back up. The footsteps halt. The soldier cocks their rifle. Combat mold will usually absorb most of the kinetic impact from a round from a distance. Sure, you might break a rib or get winded, but you'll be alive. A point-blank range is a different story. Either the shot kills you or knocks you out. Luckily for me, it's the latter. The Anthronesian collapses unceremoniously in pain to the floor and I duck back behind the crate. I pop up and exchange a few shots with the guards. The sidearm vibrates only once, showing I hit the target. I fire a few more rounds and duck back down. I move out to the side of the crate and fire a shot. As I do, a familiar golden glow catches my eye. I bring myself back behind cover and quickly dart back out, not firing but instead taking stock of my new opponents. Now there are three golden lights, then four, then a fifth emerges from the darkness and I know I have lost this battle. I'm only going to say this once. You've interrupted something very important. If you know what's good for you, you'll take the clip out of that pistol and toss it our way. I unload the pistol and throw it behind me. Alright. Stand. Put your hands on your head. I place my right arm on my head and keep the other lowered as the pain is too strong to raise it fully. It doesn't matter if you do, really. It's just something I say, you know. We'll shoot you if you try anything. I stand and the floodlights switch back on, once more illuminating the area like daylight. Jesus Christ! The voice says. My reaction to her words must have been obvious. Nothing, sorry. Just, it's not every day you see a human with a set of glass horns, you know. I tilt my head to the side. How does she know I'm human? Come now, Adam. You don't think that we would forget one of our own now, would you? Come on. Let's get a good look at you. I march towards the gate, one hand held over my bleeding shoulder. The smell of spent gunpowder permeates the air like a thick musk. A pair of Anthronesians brush past me to scoop up their fallen comrade. The rest stare at me through the pain of their rebreather visors, each dressed in the ornate bronze decorated combat mold and waist-length capes. The source of the voice that previously called out to me stands with the rifle like the one used by the woman who shot Might. I can tell it's not her though. The person in front of me is far more muscular, 
is more relaxed. A major difference is that her armour is of a resplendent gold. The acanthus pattern is more extended and curls around more of her body, and on her mask it arcs more extravagantly. At her side stands four other masked Anthronesians, more akin to the one I met previously, each holding their own rifle that emanates a golden glow. Alright, let's get that shoulder scene too. I'll see. She stares at a soldier to my left and gestures with her head. A blinder is placed over my head. I see nothing and hear nothing save for my own breathing as I am very unceremoniously picked up and dragged away. The cracked and bumpy surface of the mesa soon turns to the metal and rubber ridges of a ramp and then the smooth flooring of a cruiser. I feel the jolt of an airlock and go to take off my breathing apparatus but a gloved hand slaps mine away and removes it for me. Would you mind putting that back in my bandolier? I ask, my own voice muffled. No response. My bandolier and spear are taken off me and I'm placed in a cold metal chair. The blinder isn't removed, and so I stay sat in complete, muffled darkness. I feel a sharp pain in my shoulder as the bullet is removed and the wound gets patched up with nanobots. After an hour or so, the blinder is rested off of me, and I am hit with the blinding light of an interrogation room. A grey oval table smoothly rises from the ground. The room is hexagonally shaped, with padded foam lining the curved walls. It smells like metal. Sat in front of me is one of the masked Anthronesians. Not the golden leader, but still intimidating nonetheless. A metal arm descends from the ceiling behind her and hovers just above her shoulder. Subject is Aiden, Delta 5. What follows is a brief description for the written file. Opaque glass horns, similar to that of a yak. Dark grey eyes all the way through, with distinctions in shade between sclera, iris and pupil. Skin has a slight golden shimmer that catches in certain lights. It was you, wasn't it? A curved dark line curves inward on the top half of the eye, and outward on the bottom half. This happens on both eyes. You shot my friend. It is believed that subject's aberrations are a result She's of... still alive, you know. A result of a form of divine curse, or perhaps prolonged immortality, though in other immortals these irregularities are not present. Witness recommends extended observation during his time with the Anthronesians. She's also the most vindictive person I know. Interrupt me again. And I'll shoot you as well. I can take it. <laughs> Maybe I'll try my hardest to approximate death for you then. So much you in concrete and bury you on some barren, oxygenless wasteland of a planet somewhere. Concrete can decay. Over thousands of years. And I've got time. She leans back and crosses her arms. Witnesses scales of nemesis. Date and time logged automatically. The lens of the robotic arm switches and some internal component clicks. I suppose you do have time. We can take as long as we need to get you to our side. We've waited this long so far. I'm sure we can afford however many hundreds of years it will take to bend your will to align with our own. You want me to join you? You slaughter whole communities for food. If you think there's any chance I'll work for you, you're crazier than I thought. Perhaps. But one of the great things about humanity is our affinity for adapting to our circumstances. I've worn the mantle of the scales of Nemesis for longer than I held my previous identity. It did not take long before I became myself and left who I was behind. You will do the same. Hmm. What is it that you're doing on this planet? Are you here to stop our work? I'll be honest, I wasn't even aware of the existence of you lot until a few days ago. You wouldn't have. I'd be delighted to know what it is you're doing here. I'm hoping it's something to do with those rifles. And then it's two birds with one stone in terms of mystery. I'm almost certain, though, it has something to do with the dissimulation field. Where are you generating that from, by the way? There's a lot of power to be creating. I have no way of knowing, but I really hope that threw her off. She looks up, suddenly. Yes. I'm with him now. He's 
Very annoying. Perceptive, though. He knows. Yes. No, it's fine. He can only hear me. Fine. She twitches, and I can see from her body language that she's still talking. The sound seems to be enclosed within that mask of hers. More advanced than it initially seems, apparently. She stands suddenly. Let's go. We march down a huge space. Too large to be called a corridor, but too long to be called an atrium. If I had to guess, the usable ship space is about a mile long. The stretch of corridor is only about two-fifths that. At the end of the area, it diverges around a curved wall with a set of large doors in it. Huge cylinders line the walls, pumping gas into whatever is contained within. All around, hordes of people mill about. Large squads of armed soldiers jog up and down. Visors, scientists in heavy protective clothing supervise the transportation of large gas storage tanks. Officers stand to attention as we pass. We pass a crossway on the left side, presumably leading to a firing range. We reach the tall, reinforced doors. Waiting for me is the golden-masked Anthronesian. Was that worth it? She says to the scales. Not really. Maybe listen to me next time? She looks at me. I am the Sword of Nemesis. It's a pleasure to meet you. You are about to bear witness to the key to the future. I believe you are under the reverence of the gods, whether you will admit it to yourself or not. I hope that what I'm about to show you will go some way to making you an ally. To have the first ever human would be a large boon for us, let alone an immortal. A true testament to the potential humanity. She looks up and to the left slightly as she communicates with whoever is on the other end of her call. I close my eyes and focus, listening and feeling for the dissimulation field. I've witnessed the divine, the magical. I know how it makes the atmosphere feel, how it makes me feel. There's no way a dissimulation field can be produced without some form of magic. The pure power it takes to hide something, even from the gods, can only be focused with an artifact. I'm sure of it. To sense something, close by. Hey! The sword clicks an ornate gloved hand in front of my face. Where did you go? Just thinking about how I'm going to escape. Cute. Uh, where is everyone else? The scales ask. The cubit is performing more initiations. The bridle is off fulfilling our promise to that town in the trees. The whip is training. And we don't have a dagger anymore, as we're both painfully aware. Have I satisfied your curiosity? Is something wrong with you today? She asks aggressively. No. Excuse me, I didn't quite catch that. No, ma'am. Excellent. Let's move on with it, then. The sword waves her hand at the large decorated door and it splits into six sections, which fold away to reveal a lift platform. Is this ship of human design? Of course. It's just that this doesn't seem like a human-made ship. It's not modelled from any council shipyard, that's for sure. You're unaware of our history. The sword says with an audible smirk. We have nothing to do with the council. We come from the solar system, not Earth, unfortunately, but the surrounding planets and moons. I'm slightly taken aback, but I thought... No more questions for now, later. She says as the platform rises and jolts to a stop. We step off and into a room with a wide control panel which juts out from the wall and has a mess of wires that hang and splay messily outwards. Two figures in protective gear stand to attention. They wear what only can be described as ceremonial hazmat suits plated in ornamented bronze and sleekly hugging close to their forms. They move to the back of the room. A large hexagonal window of reinforced glass looks out onto a dark hall. I walk up to it and look out. A golden pillar of light sits at the centre of the long oval room, which does its best to light up the steeply deep black room. The entire floor is filled with a black liquid, which reflects the pillar's golden resplendence. 
A large set of vents fill the ceiling. Many set of vents pump in the noble gases the Anthrodesians seem to be so fond of. What is that? I say, and turn to see the scales of Nemesis step into an exosuit of some kind, assisted by the two scientist figures. It lines up perfectly with her armour, and is adorned in the same acanthus pattern. She stands in a room, lined with equipment, half lab, half workshop. The tools are laid out in an almost ceremonial way, and archaic wax candles burn in the corners of the room. Laying on what almost feels like an altar is a strange-looking halberd, which has the familiar set of golden rings which spin, but the golden glow is absent. Sat where the blade meets the staff, the whole thing is heavily decorated, but the engravings seem like they had been added to a pre-existing structure, and is made of a material and fashioned in a design that seems so alien to me. The scales picks up the weapon and holds it in front of her. Her exosuit doesn't add anything to her impressive height, but she walks with newfound power and intensity. She moves to leave the room through an airlock. The sword stops her. You're scared. Don't be. I am here. We all stand behind you, filled with love and support. Remember, they did nothing to help us. She enters the airlock and goes down a set of stairs that lead round the side of the large room and wades into the shin-high black fluid. The two scientists sit at the control panel. Manifestation, ready to go when you are, ma'am. Scales, are you ready? Uh, yes. She says, her voice wavering slightly. The sword taps the scientist on the shoulder and they begin to press button and flip switches. The room begins to rumble and bolts of lightning lick out into the air, causing a similar effect on the noble gases that the electrified rounds outside had. My face is lit up with the vibrant colours that flash intensely. The sword grips the back of the chairs that the scientists sit in. I raised my voice into the firmament, even to the very joists of heaven's floor, and like comets did my cries return unto my lips. She says to herself, What is this? I ask as a lash of yellow lightning strikes the scales, who flinches, but doesn't move from her stance. This is power. This is the future. We suffered and writhed in pain, and no one came to our aid. The gods abandoned us. The council preyed upon us as we lay in the dust of our civilization. Our cheeks sallow and our spirits broken. We will bring them to their knees, and when they beg for mercy, we will savour their pitiful whimpers and allow their anguish to satiate our deep and integral need for revenge. Something flashes in the reflection of the golden pillar. I sent forth my hounds and watched as they returned with the tyrant in their jaws. The golden silhouette suddenly appears and then disappears, and the scale swings the halberd where it previously stood. My chariots rushed forth upon the wheels of the hurricane and dragged my oppressors to their appointed stations, and fairly did I divide my judgments among them. Another one appears and moves for a second before disappearing again. It's tall, at least a foot taller than the scales. And with hands so dexterous did I skillfully complete the noose, and with luxurious tenderness did I prove the blade upon flesh. The silhouette finally manifests, tall and slender. Swathed in robe and golden fire, it faces away from us, toward the scales, who holds up her halberd, horizontal to her eyes, which are filled with a deep veneration. Something rides beneath the massive white cloth of its robes and stretches out, perhaps arms, perhaps some other appendage. Regardless, it has more than two. A set of wings made up of shards of golden light stretch out into the room, almost touching the sides. The creature hunches down animalistically and harmoniously screeches. 
angels. The hordes upon magnificent hordes of Elysian spirits that do the bidding of the divine, that are the divine. I have seen an angel only once in my life. I was so struck with fear that I could occupy my mind with nothing else than its incomparable beauty. And so it brings me a special kind of fear when I see the scales thrust her polearm at its chest with such hatred. I call out and hit my fist on the glass. Stop! They'll see! They'll find us! My ingrained fear of celestial retribution smothering my senses. The angel swipes at the scales with a long and stone-like arm, finding its usual attack of melodic incantations which call upon the almost limitless power of the gods to be hopeless. I watch in horror as they fight. This is taking too long. The dissimulation field can only hide so much scales. For a moment, I hope that she will fail, and that the angel will call upon its god once more and draw attention to this evil place. But it is too late. The halberd has been violently lodged into the slender and graceful form of the being, more light than anything. Molten glass drips from the gash in its neck and falls limp. The blade of the weapon begins to glow brightly, and the spinning rings at its core take on a golden glow in the centre. The corpse of the angel falls into the black fluid, its pristine robes a mere shell without the divine essence inhabiting it. You can't do this, they say to Sword, who has regained her composure. Not forever. You're right, but we won't need to. She puts her hand on the shoulder of one of the scientists. You know the drill. Extract and replace the angelic core, and then begin the next manifestation. I think we're ready for something more substantial. Let's go for an archangel and see where that gets us. She ushers me towards the lift. I'll show you to your room. I'm sure you have much to think about. After all, the age of the council is drawing to a close, and you will get a front row seat. Sword of Nemesis, played by Lucy Campbell. Anthonesian Scientist, played by Ketchup. Rolder, played by Ilana Lloyd. The Anthonesian Sergeant, played by Paul Walsh, who writes and stars in The Green Horizon. Belikov, played by Eric Smith. Latimer, played by Lance Chapman. Scales of Nemesis, played by Marianne Stanek. Music, by Fracture. Sound Design, Writing and Adam Delta 5, played by Kai Gwillen Pritchard. Email us at chainofbeingofficial at gmail.com for inquiries and stuff. Follow the podcast on Twitter at chainofbeing and subscribe to the Patreon for exclusive content and rewards. And now a promo for another excellent podcast. Hello, I'm Russ Moore, co-creator and game master for the podcast Facing Fate. I'd like to invite you to come listen to our show. Facing Fate is an anthology podcast that explores settings, genres, and different characters by way of a thrilling and hilarious collaborative storytelling experience. Each season is built using structured, long-form improv. In season one, we travel to the stars with Lunacore. When humanity turns to an unknown energy source, it risks dire consequences for the employees of Lunacorp main base. In season two, monsters walk among us. But what's truly scary is what hides in their shadows. Set in Toronto, Canada in the mid-90s, an unknown force from beyond threatens life as we know it. And three unlikely heroes must step forward to stop a cataclysmic event involving vampires, werewolves, and rogue spirits. You can find the complete season one and episode one of season two now. Search for Facing Fate anywhere you listen to podcasts or visit facingfate.com.